Hello, thanks for tuning into America Explained. Just before the episode begins, I want to tell you about a new venture I've launched that I'm very excited about, an America Explained newsletter. You can sign up for free using the link in the show notes for this episode in your podcast app. If you sign up for this free newsletter, then a few times a month, you're going to receive directly into your email inbox piece of writing by me about some important issue in American foreign policy or politics. The pledge I make with this newsletter is never to spam you. I'm not going to be just, you know, looking for excuses to to put out posts. But when something really important happens, when there's some deeper context that you really need to know in order to understand what's in the news right now, you're going to find a post from me in your inbox about that. It's also an opportunity for us to build a community around America Explained. I've I've been so overwhelmed by the response that I've had to this podcast, the number of people who've been listening to it. And the newsletter is a place for us to come together as a community where we can talk, we can post comments, have discussions about the issues of the day. So please check it out. Again, the link is in the show notes in your podcast app for this episode, or you can point your web browser to amerex.substack.com. That's A-M-E-R-E-X. E-R-E-X substack.com. Welcome to another episode of America Explained, the podcast that brings the important voices and perspectives shaping American politics, foreign policy and culture to an international audience. So, hello everyone, welcome to America Explained. As this episode goes out, it's been about a month since Kabul fell to the Taliban, in an offensive that took most of the world by surprise, at least for the speed with which it achieved victory. Since then, and since I last recorded an episode about this, Afghanistan stayed in the news. The chaotic evacuation of Westerners and allied Afghans has fueled criticism of the Biden administration in the United States and indeed around the world as well. Last week, the Taliban announced their new government, which features a hardline cabinet of figures who are also the same people who ruled the country the last time the Taliban were in power in the 1990s. This return to power by these men after 20 years of fighting against and ultimately defeating the United States seems to me to be an appropriate moment to step back and think about some of the bigger picture and the deeper history of this conflict and American involvement in it. That's why I'm delighted today to be joined by Jeffrey Michaels, a senior fellow at the Barcelona Institute for International Affairs. Jeffrey's an expert on American foreign and defence policy who formerly worked at the Pentagon, was a historian at NATO and also taught at the UK Defence Academy, including to British officers who'd spent time in Afghanistan. Jeff, welcome to the show and thanks for joining us. Andy, thank you very much for inviting me on your program. I've, I've been a big fan of, uh, you know, ever since you started the American Explained series. And so it's a tremendous honor to be invited to speak. Oh, thanks so much. It's so nice to hear. And um, so the first question I wanted to ask was that what, what were the first things that you thought when the Kabul government collapsed so swiftly a couple of weeks ago? Were you surprised by this or is it something that you'd been expecting? Uh, there were several things I was thinking about, more or less simultaneously, and all of them had to do with Vietnam, uh, simply because having written about U.S. policy and the fall of Saigon in April of 1975, uh, having taught about North Vietnam's final offensive, I, w- I was struck by some interesting parallels. Uh, for instance, how the military systems the U.S. had effectively created and supported for many years collapsed like a house of cards, in both cases by an inferior military force in terms of both numbers and technology. I was also struck by how the U.S. in both cases Uh, Although for different reasons, despite having the capability to intervene, if only with air power, I chose to avoid doing so. Uh, I was sort of reminded of Graham Martin, the U.S. ambassador in Saigon, uh, and his dilemma of whether or not to start an evacuation early because, you know, by doing so, uh, you know, are you not betraying the government you were supposed to be supporting 
and making defeat even more likely. In that sense, I was certainly reminded of the chaotic evacuation scenes from 1975. I was reminded when, you know, when President Ghani fled the country, leaving the rest of his government without a leader, of, of thinking about President Tu leaving South Vietnam about a week before the final collapse. Uh, you know, I was reminded of the blame game, that this was a failure of Democrat politicians, you know, that the military could have won if only they hadn't been undermined by the politicians and that sort of argument. You know, but most of all, when it comes to the question of surprise, I was amazed that this had not happened years earlier, that it actually took the Taliban this long, that the Afghan government, you know, survived as long as it did. You know, when we used to do projections about what would happen once the large Western military presence was downsized. You know, this was back in 2012, 2013, 2014, thereabouts. We used to hear a lot about, you know, a period of two years being the time needed for the Taliban to reorganize and launch its version of the final offensive and for the Afghan government to collapse. So that it took until 2021 for this to occur was a big surprise. Yeah, and that, that's a really interesting way to reframe uh, this conversation because, of course, so much of the reaction in the Western media was to say, wow, this happened so quickly and, and that was unexpected. But what you're saying is that it's actually surprising given the structural weaknesses in the Afghan government that this hadn't happened beforehand. And do you think that that, that just, I guess that just shows the extent to which this government was completely reliant on American support? Because as soon as that support was withdrawn, pretty much, even before it had entirely been withdrawn because the, you know, the U.S. evacuation hadn't happened yet, it just collapsed straight away. Yes, I mean, I was a bit surprised in the sense that, you know, when we talk about American support... I think we need to sort of differentiate between actually having military personnel on the ground, uh, you know, directing airstrikes or special forces, you know, doing military advisory uh, duties, that kind of thing, versus actually supplying the funds and the ammunition that kept the Afghan National Army uh, functioning. Uh, so, you know, the latter was going to continue. Uh, it was just that the military advisory folks uh, and others, you know, were going to be drawn down. Uh, and removed from the country. So, you know, maybe it was the case that purely their lack of a presence undermined morale, that, you know, uh, they thought that, well, the Americans are leaving, uh, you know, they're leaving their personnel, they're, they're taking their personnel out first, and they'll be withdrawing their money shortly thereafter, they'll be stopping the ammunition flow and so forth. So maybe that has something to do with it, but I think it's probably still a bit too early to say how much the uh, American military drawdown actually affected Afghan military morale. And I think it was pretty much a question uh, of Afghan military morale. Yeah. And so I, I guess this this draws our attention to this kind of much longer and deeper history, this 20-year failure by the United States and by um, allied Afghans in Afghanistan to build a state and to build a military that was self-generating and that was able to withstand this kind of um this this gradual at least drawdown of, of american support and the loss of direct american combat support i think over the course of the war in afghanistan we've heard a great deal about or we used to hear a great deal back when it had more proponents this idea of counterinsurgency as a strategy for fighting and winning wars like this. And I wondered if you could tell us a little bit about the extent to which you think that flawed military doctrines and ideas ultimately underlie the American failure in Afghanistan. You know, about a decade ago, at the high point of the counterinsurgency fad, you know, I, I was quite critical of it as a strategy, or at least the large scale expeditionary type that we saw in Afghanistan. As I wrote about it at the time, you know, I thought it was conceptually flawed, 
on a number of levels, not the least of which was the you know, the enormous amounts of resources it was consuming, you know, the limited limited results it was achieving in the narrow sense of defeating or significantly degrading the Taliban, uh, building up a strong central government, etc. But all the more so in the broader sense of you know why wage a war in this way, if your ultimate goal is to decrease the threat of terrorist groups like Al Qaeda attacking the United States. I mean, were there not any number of other less expensive, less bloody policies and strategies one could adopt instead? Yeah, you know, by putting a large foreign force into Afghanistan, are you not simply making the problems there that much worse? Making the Afghan government reliant on the foreigners as opposed to becoming more self-reliant, generating local resentment, you know, which then helps the enemies. You know, the very fact that such a large force requires an enormous logistical tail meant that the Taliban and other insurgent groups like the Haqqani Network were able to generate enormous revenues simply by shaking down the truck drivers that would bring supplies to the military bases. As soon as you went into an area in force, uh, the Taliban went elsewhere or lay low, you know, and simply waited you out. You know, counterinsurgency can work, but this, you know, this largely has to do with the, with the competence and the willpower of the government versus the competence and the willpower of the insurgents. You know, there are numerous cases throughout history where insurgencies are defeated because they lack the willpower, they lack the sustainability, they lack the competence to be effective. You know, in contrast, the Taliban had the, had the dedication, they had the willpower, and they had the competence, or at least enough of it to survive. And then as the Western forces drew down, you know, as was inevitable, they went on to defensive and remained there. Uh, but more generally, you know, I had doubts that Americanizing the war would ever succeed. You know, the U.S. might have supported the Afghan government in a more limited way with the Afghans out in front. But with the Americans taking the lead, you know, this was a recipe for failure in much the same way, incidentally, as the U.S. Taliban negotiations. Why is it that the U.S. was, was negotiating with the Taliban rather than the Afghan government doing the negotiating? You know, at the end of the day, if there was going to be some sort of settlement, the two key actors have to be involved. You know, the U.S. was an interested bystander, but it was still a bystander. So when it comes to counterinsurgency as a strategy, I think that this was a major failure, but I don't attribute losing in Afghanistan with the failure of counterinsurgency. And I think in that sense, the real failure was not, you know, say in 2009 with the two surges of that year. It's a failure that goes back to the autumn of 2001 when U.S. policy switched from one of assisting the Northern Alliance to put pressure on the Taliban and attacking al-Qaeda. That's essentially the period when the CIA was still running things. But then the Northern Alliance were more successful, the Taliban were much weaker than anyone expected, the Pentagon became more involved in running the war, and the policy then shifted firstly to overthrowing the Taliban and then to supporting a replacement government. Uh, you know, there were also the failures not to use sufficient military force early on to pursue the remnants of al-Qaeda and get bin Laden. You know, I think it's also important to remember that from the very beginning, the prevailing assumption, the dominant analogy cited was that to get involved in Afghanistan was nothing but trouble. The United States would end up like the Soviets. Afghanistan uh, you know, was the graveyard of empires, a quagmire. You know, this was the standard assumption, and the future in that sense was quite easy to foresee. But you know, for various reasons, the US kept increasing its role, increasing the amount of resources it was committing to that conflict to such an extent that by the time we, we start talking about a large-scale counterinsurgency strategy, you know, the only victory to be had was a Pyrrhic victory, I mean, which is not really a victory at all. Your level of commitment is totally disproportionate to the threat. So, you know, in short, counterinsurgency failed, but the U.S. had effectively lost much earlier. 
You're listening to America Explained, a podcast about the United States for an international audience. If you like what you hear, please subscribe, tell a friend, and leave a positive review on your podcast platform. Yeah, and something that people have been talking about a lot over the last month or so is this uh, peace offer that the Taliban made in late 2001, where they basically offered to um, sever their ties to Al-Qaeda, give up Mullah Omar, but let him, who, who was the leader of the Taliban at the time, but let him leave, I think, to Pakistan to, to live out the rest of his life. And the U.S. rejected these these demands and or this offer, and then kind of embarked on this military adventure that you've been talking about. And it's kind of notable that what the U.S. has achieved now in its agreement with the Taliban is really not that different to this offer that was made by the Taliban in late two thousand and one. Um, but but there's been twenty years of fighting in between that it now looks like well maybe they would have just been best not to do that in the first place. Yes, I mean, I think I agree uh, in many respects. I mean, if you go back to uh, September 2001, I mean, now we're at the 28-year anniversary point. Uh, I mean, I think it's important to remember the mentality prevailing at that time. I mean, it's, sort of, it's hard for historians to sort of remember what it was like that month and the chaos of that month of sort of the immediate aftermath as the U.S. government has tried to figure out what to do. And, you know, part of that prevailing mentality was you had to do something fairly dramatic. You could not let this just uh, stand. You needed to do something that was uh, sort of going to catch attention, that you were going to be dynamic, that you were taking action. And so when we get into this issue about diplomacy with the Taliban, uh, you know, it could have worked had it been given more time, theoretically. But at the time, again, it was we need to do something right now. And we'll sort of worry about the consequences of that later on, because we need to show that we're doing something. There's this demand for immediate action. But I think you're, you're, you're probably right in principle that where we are today is not a whole heck of a lot, heck of a lot different from where we were 20 years ago, except perhaps in the sense that uh, we, might have, we, we might have more trust of the Taliban, ironically, now than we did then. <laughs> Well, yeah, I, th- I think that's a that's a really interesting point, and one of the things that has been really eye-opening over the last month or so is the extent to which the U.S. has been cooperating at a working level with the Taliban, for instance, to um, carry out the evacuation, um, to combat ISIS-K, which is the ISIS affiliate in Afghanistan that both the Taliban and the U.S. regard as an enemy. And I, I think Mark Milley, the chairman of the Joint Chiefs, Chief of Staff, actually said the other day that the U.S. might coordinate tactically against ISIS-K with the Taliban in the future. It's kind of amazing to me because when you look at the aftermath of the Vietnam War, it took 20 years or so, for well, 20 years exactly, in fact, for the U.S. to eventually normalize relations with the Vietnamese government. And although we don't know yet if the U.S. is going to move towards recognizing the Taliban, they do seem to recognize now shared interests, at least in the short term, that might bring them together. And I know that you've been analyzing the withdrawal agreement that Donald Trump reached with the Taliban to look at kind of the possible framework that this creates for for trust and cooperation between the US and the Taliban in the future. What can you tell us about the the, the weaknesses of that agreement and, and what it says? And this is, what, this is what I found absolutely remarkable. Uh, after the Taliban had captured Kabul, you actually had the director of central intelligence fly to Kabul 
going to Taliban-controlled Kabul to meet with the Taliban. This was not going off to Doha to meet with the Taliban, actually flying it to Kabul to talk to the Taliban. You know, you don't do that unless you have a certain degree of trust with the other side, that they're not going to try to, you know, capture you, hold you for ransom and all the rest of that. What I found interesting about the Vietnam case was that, and I, my views are somewhat heretical in this sense, but I, I kind of attribute that that hostility to the way in which North Vietnam effectively humiliated the United States in those last days. I think in many respects that 20-year period of hostility wasn't necessary. It was because the North Vietnamese pushed on and you saw these chaotic scenes at the embassy and the last helicopter and that sort of thing. Whereas in the case of the Taliban and and Afghanistan, I, I, I think that it's a bit different, that there was a lot more trust involved. And for that reason, you might see more uh, more of a move towards some kind of reconciliation, uh, such as there is, you know, to the extent that there can be one. So as far as the agreement uh, that was uh, uh, signed in February of 2020, so this is the, the, the Trump uh, administration's agreement with the Taliban, it's quite a remarkable document. I mean, I'd, I'd, I'd encourage anybody who's you know, heard a lot about this document, either because Biden has referred to it or you know, it's been referred to a lot in recent weeks, to actually go and read the, read the text because it is a quite a remarkable document. Um, now, there are various tales about this document and you know, it took many, many months uh, to put this thing together and there were lots of fits and starts and all the rest of it. But the final document looks like it was written like overnight. Um, you know, this doesn't seem like it was, it doesn't look like it was very well put together in many important respects, you know, so it'll refer to, for instance, uh, enforcement mechanisms in the opening paragraphs, but it doesn't actually say anything about the, the substance of those enforcement mechanisms in the text. And in terms of, um, you know, one thing that you heard a lot about in recent weeks was, well, the Taliban didn't hold up their end of the bargain, so why should the U.S. hold up its end of the bargain? Well, yes and no. I mean, if you actually look at the agreement, both sides have failed to honor uh, the agreement in any meaningful sense. I mean, if you recall, the U.S. was to, was supposed to have left back in May, uh, and you know, Biden got that extended until the end of uh, August. Yeah, and I think that's a really good point. And just just to circle back to another point that you made a minute ago, which was about how the gap in the normalization of relations between the U.S. and and uh, Vietnam after the war was to do with the way that, that the U.S. was humiliated. I think what also was really interesting about that period after the war was the way that the prisoner of war missing in action issue was kept alive by the American right. So there was basically this theory on in conservative circles in American politics that North well, the Vietnamese who had formerly been the North Vietnamese still held hundreds or thousands of American prisoners and that these prisoners needed to be given back before the U.S. would be able to normalize relations with Vietnam. This became a really big issue because this wasn't true. So it was a really big barrier to the normalization of relations because these prisoners couldn't be returned because they didn't exist. And I, I think I did, obviously there's not going to be any direct analogy here. So I don't think that anyone's going to claim that the Taliban still holds hundreds of American prisoners. But it does kind of point to the fact that I think it could be domestically tricky for the Biden administration to move too quickly to embrace the Taliban and to coordinate with the Taliban in pursuit of shared objectives because there's going to be such tremendous resistance on that to, on the American right. 
um, these resistance fighters that, that were still fighting the Taliban over the last couple of weeks, although they've now been defeated, Republicans were calling for the Biden administration to back and to arm these people to fight against the Taliban. So I think that's the kind of mindset that, that a big part of the American political spectrum is in right now, that they're not at all in the mood to embrace the Taliban. They still want to keep the fight going. And um, so it kind of just brings me to the topic of of the Biden administration and, and how it's handled this and, and where it might go from here. You know, the Biden administration has come in with a, a, an awful lot of criticism for the way that it's handled um, Afghanistan and particularly the withdrawal. And I just wondered how, you know, as, as someone who studied intelligence a lot and who's also worked in these inst- relevant institutions, how do you rate the administration on its decisions in Afghanistan in general and also, you know, just the handling specifically of the withdrawal process? I mean, in, in principle and probably contrary to much of the mainstream opinion, uh, at the moment, which is highly critical of the administration, I, I think the general policy decision that was announced in April of more or less eliminating the U.S. military presence in Afghanistan uh, was a sound one. Uh, you know, it was one that was long overdue. It was one that was always going to receive a great deal of criticism uh, from the U.S. military itself, which had always opposed withdrawal uh, from some allies from the Republican right, as you've just mentioned. Um, you know, although you know, caveat that statement by also pointing out that simply because the U.S. didn't have troops on the ground, that that somehow implied that they would remain uninvolved in the conflict there. I mean, it's important to remind ourselves that the Afghan security forces were still being fully funded by the U.S. government. Uh, you know, they're mainly being sustained by the U.S. government. And in the official statements, one still comes across references to continued close air support. In other words, the U.S. was still going to be fighting the Taliban. The U.S. was not going to be in the position of some neutral party. U.S. money and weapons were still going to be used to kill the Taliban but is mainly going to be doing this indirectly instead of directly. Now, having said that, and I think this is really the crux of the matter, with Biden's decision, we witnessed an important shift in U.S. policy from one of indefinite postponement of a Taliban victory, which is to say that you continue pumping enough resources into the conflict in order to delay defeat as long as possible, to a new policy of accelerating the inevitable. You know, I would emphasize that these are both bad options. You know, There are not these, these are not ideal choices, but the fact of the matter was that there weren't any ideal choices because there was no sense that this conflict was going to radically change in a positive direction. The Taliban were clearly in the ascendance. The Afghan government were never going to succeed militarily where the large-scale Western military intervention had failed. You know, this basically left two paths to a Taliban victory. The first path would be to uh, prolong the stalemate for so long that the Taliban would negotiate a power-sharing agreement with the Afghan government. You know, of course, the fear there was, you know, certainly, certainly the fear of the Afghan government was that to give the Taliban any meaningful role in the government was effectively defeat, as the hardline Taliban would gradually increase its power, subvert the moderates, etc., and then take, you know, take over completely anyway. The second path to a Taliban victory is what we saw. You know, that's the physical overrunning of the country. But you know there was no option of an Afghan government victory over the Taliban. I mean, I don't think anyone saw that as a realistic option. You know, that was the miracle option. You know, absent a miracle, it was never going to happen. Uh, but uh, you know, as to the handling of the withdrawal, uh, of course, there are always things that could have been done differently or should have been done differently in terms of timing, in terms of planning, in terms of committing resources, in terms of uh, more flights out, in terms of identifying places to relocate refugees, you know, etc. The only action, in my view at least, that might have been useful 
was to bring U.S. air power to bear on the Taliban advance, thus slowing them down, blunting their initiative, which would have been important for morale purposes, and giving the Afghan forces more of a chance to regroup and put up a stronger defense, especially around the big cities, especially around Kabul. Perhaps more time to organize some sort of rump Afghan government that would still retain official recognition and legitimacy to the extent that, you know, uh, that was still viewed by anyone as desirable. You know, although, you know, although I think, you know, the end result of a Taliban victory would have happened anyway, using air power might have delayed that victory by some weeks, perhaps months. The problem with the air power option, however, is that it would almost certainly have enraged the Taliban so that the sort of cooperation that you saw, the sort of cooperation we've just been talking about, um, you know, essentially leaving the airport unmolested, not trying to disrupt the withdrawal, at least not in any significant way, uh, for instance, by firing on the aircraft. I doubt very much that that cooperation would have occurred. You're listening to America Explained, a podcast about American politics, foreign policy, and culture for an international audience. Like it? Then tell a friend and help us grow. Another aspect of the reaction to this that I've been really interested in is is the criticism of the United States that we've been hearing from European politicians and, and media commentators. And I've noticed this particularly in Britain and also in Germany, where candidates for the chancellorship, because there's an election there right now, have been really critical of, of the United States. And the general kind of tone and tenor of this, crit- of this criticism has been that what Biden has done is irresponsible and it shows that the US isn't serious about exciting world power anymore and isn't serious about having um, a, a global interventionist foreign policy. I found this criticism, frankly, bizarre coming from, you know, European politicians who don't want to, um, or of course, many of them have over the last couple of decades sent soldiers to Afghanistan, sent civilians to Afghanistan. They've been involved in funding the Afghan national government, but their involvement has always been completely contingent on the American presence. And so what what do you make of, of this criticism coming from European politicians and media commentators who seem to me to want America to do something that they don't want to do themselves, which makes me question how strongly they really value it? Yes, I was quite surprised by the degree of criticism, uh, which I think you quite correctly characterize as, as bizarre, uh, although I might use a slightly different adjective and simply call it uh, pathetic. Um, you know, what struck me as especially odd was that prior to August, practically no one cared about Afghanistan. This was really a forgotten war. You know, it's a war that was deliberately forgotten, you know, an, an example, an excellent example of cognitive dissonance. You know, we knew that it existed somewhere in the background, but it had been years since anyone had taken it seriously, you know, compared to, for instance, you know, back in its heyday a decade ago, when Afghanistan was on the front page all the time and dominated the news. You know, I would, I would simply put it down to a matter of fashions and ratings. When suddenly an international crisis occurs, you have this, you have this feeding frenzy effect where everyone suddenly has an opinion. Everyone is, is suddenly an expert on the topic, and for politicians. To say something controversial on the topic of the day means getting attention, being in the limelight. But probably the worst part is to see so many you know, discredited analysts that I'm familiar with, so many discredited politicians, suddenly coming out of the woodwork and being given airtime, writing op-eds, and being taken somewhat seriously. You know, what has been quite unnerving with the Afghanistan feeding frenzy of the last month or so 
uh, you know, I think as you point out, is the sheer nonsense of what is being talked about. I mean, the U.S. is no longer a dependable ally. Really? I mean, perhaps that's true, but, you know, this is a debate, this is a criticism that's been going on for decades and decades. Yet somehow you have analysts and politicians claiming that it all began under Biden. I mean, you know, even if you don't have a long-term memory or any real historical perspective, is it really impossible to simply cast one's mind back a year ago? I mean, does not anyone remember the Trump administration and the endless discussions about America's commitment to allies back then? I mean, you know, also it's one thing to raise questions about commitment. You know, if the U.S. had left Afghanistan after a year or two, you know, but the U.S. remained in Afghanistan for nearly 20 years and invested a ridiculous amount of resources, far more than anybody else. Yeah, I think there are plenty of legitimate questions about competence, but not about commitment. So the quality of the arguments in many respects is, is in my mind, uh, beyond pathetic, which is why when it comes to the long term of transatlantic relations, I don't see this as having any significant negative effect. I mean, compared to Trump, for instance, Afghanistan is not going to be a major issue. And I, I could easily cite a dozen other examples of supposedly major crises that would destroy transatlantic relations and never really made more than a dent, you know, and that didn't go away after a short period of time. In private, I suspect that at one level, at least, most European countries are quite pleased that their involvement in the conflict has finally ended. And, you know, they can sort of blame the Americans for that. Although I don't think anyone was paying attention uh, until his mid-August speech precisely because Afghanistan was such a low priority issue, you know, when Biden's saying, what Biden was saying in his, in, in his speeches for, for, for months now, you know, for those of you, you know, for anybody who's paid attention, was that basically the last decade of Western involvement in Afghanistan has been a gigantic waste of time and resources. I mean, if you look at Biden's rhetoric, what he's been saying quite openly is that at a minimum, there was no reason to stay in Afghanistan after 2011 when Osama bin Laden was killed in neighboring Pakistan, I should add. In other words, after all the effort, after all the bloodshed, etc., it was all a waste. Now, this is not a narrative that anyone likes to hear. It's not, it's not the narrative that other governments signed up to or that the NATO alliance signed up to. So I can fully appreciate a great deal of resentment. The question is, to what degree will that resentment lead to any major policy changes? I suspect it won't lead to any, if for no other reason, that Afghanistan lost its significance years ago, and everyone has understood this. Yeah, and I, I do think that's such an interesting point you made about how the way that the Biden administration has framed Afghanistan has been basically something that we should have given up on a long time ago, and that not been something that the European allies want to hear. And I think that really applies, especially in the case of Britain, where there's a certain subset of politicians and commentators who are really, really bought into this idea of Britain as a force for good in the world by acting as an adjunct of American power. So basically these kind of Anglo-American endeavors like Afghanistan, like Iraq, give Britain an enhanced kind of weight and influence in the world. And I think it's been really difficult for that segment of, of British society to accept what's happened here. And in a way, the, the fact that, you know, as, as you say, everyone had kind of forgotten about Afghanistan um, until earlier this year. And I think that, you know, America couldn't forget about it because America was still fighting the war, but Britain had kind of withdrawn. They weren't actually confronted with any cost on a daily basis, but they still had this kind of hazy idea that it was a noble enterprise without actually having to kind of 
test those ideals and those assumptions against reality and, and against continuing sacrifices. So I think it has been a, a real blow for Britain, although I'd agree that, you know, I mean, post-Brexit Britain is just kind of floundering in, in, in trying to establish some kind of um, foreign policy that works for it, you know, outside of the European Union. And I'm not sure that this will make that much difference to that. No, I think you're right. I mean, this is an interesting question about Anglo-American relations. I mean, uh, I mean, in the first instance, I would probably separate the force for good bit with uh, the other uh, element of U.S. Pol- of, of U.K. policy, which I think is more the dominant consideration, which is the extent to which being aligned with the United States in some of these conflicts gives it somehow a greater voice uh, in global affairs. Um, I think in both contexts, they're, they're, they're inevitably going to be disappointed. And this is not the first time that this has happened. I mean, this is effectively a broken record at this point in time. I mean, how many times over the last 20 years, just to take the last 20 years, have we seen this occur time and again? You know, you go back much, much earlier. I mean, you know, I think often back to, say, the Suez crisis or something like this, where you have this, what would, what would seem to be, a, you know, a, a very... Um, lo, uh, a low point in Anglo-American relations, but on many key issues, they're 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 still working together. I mean, uh, so you know, these things tend to have a very short shelf life, but the underlying uh, essentials of the relationship seem to um, seem to endure. Yeah, and just 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 to close, so my one of my favorite quotes about the Anglo-American relationship is that. Uh, Colonel Robert McCormick, who was um, the publisher of the Chicago Tribune, but he's been he'd been a officer in the U.S. Army in World War One, and he said around about the time of of the end of the Second World War that the British are no longer important enough for me to dislike. <laughs> so basically, that you know when when Britain had been the dominant force in global affairs, that there was you know a great deal of animosity directed towards it from from many quarters of the globe, and including by people in the U.S. who didn't like its influence. The Anglo-American relationship from the American side, at least now, I think, is it's completely dispassionate. It's it's not invested with um, all of this these emotional overtones that the British give it, but it is one that is utilitarian and useful for America, and that's going to continue into the future. And and as you said, the you know from the British side, even though we do in society you know have these very kind of romantic feelings about the special relationship, but at the policymaker level, it's utilitarian. It's very useful, and I don't think that that's going to change. So. I think that's a really important insight to end on as well. Um, so thank you so much, Jeff, for joining us. It's, it's been a real pleasure to have you on the show. And thanks for all of these insights. No, thank you very much, Andy. That's all we have time for this episode. Thanks for listening to America Explained. You can contact us on producer at america-explained.com or through the America Explained Facebook page. I'm your host, Andy Gawthorpe. Designer and advisor is Janice Killian. Music by Soundwave. America Explained is an APD media production. See you next time.